trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there, and welcome to the show. Whether you are a longtime listener or a first-time wrong thinker, let me welcome you to a place where you will find courage and camaraderie in owning your own worldview. You're going to meet some nice people here, get introduced to some great guests, some great writers, and hopefully some ideas that will enlarge your understanding of the world around you. I don't pretend for a moment that I have the answers to all the questions, but I'd like to think that we're at least asking the right questions. So, let's see if we can get a little bit closer to understanding what the world is like, and more importantly, what can we do about it within our respective spheres of influence. Something that uh, I have seen uh, over the over the years, and especially as I become more acquainted with what socialism is and what socialism isn't, and I'm just going to offer this, um, you know, off the cuff explanation. Um, socialism can be defined as a lot of things, and sometimes when you start to talk about it, people get a little bit uh, up in arms. Well, now, you're not talking about socialism. I want to get your definition here because, you know, what you're describing really is something different. But when I talk about socialism, I'm talking about a form of collectivism in which a small elite body has the power to make the decisions for everyone else. In other words, uh, control and and just basically planning for a society, for a community, falls to the elite or a very tiny group of people who it is believed have the wisdom and the necessary temperament to rule others. Now, the reason I cannot subscribe to this is because it flies in the face of something that, uh, that to me, undergirds the, the essential understanding of liberty, and that is individual rights. Every single person you meet, whether they are a U.S. citizen or not, has innate, God-given rights that are theirs by virtue of the fact that they are a living, breathing human being. Socialism, or collectivism, as I will often call it in its variants, always seeks to subvert the individual's rights in favor of what the collective, the crowd, wants. And in this case, oftentimes what the crowd, I'm putting that in quotes, air quotes, you know, wants, is actually just what a tiny elite who managed to have attained power, the power seekers and opportunists, want. Although they do a very, you know, fine job of trying to convince people, no, 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 this is what you wanted, this is what you've asked for. And it's been fascinating to watch how the acceptance of socialism has, has crept into the public consciousness. I think the craziest part about this uh, comes down to, you know, I I look at uh, how widely accepted it is by young people. And I'm, you know, this is not the old guy shaking his fist at the kids on his lawn. But for some reason, every generation or so, the new kids get together. Hey, isn't it time we reinvent the wheel? And they, they seem to embrace socialism as the cause that they need to, to get behind. <clears throat> now, oftentimes they're sincere. They're, they're coming at it from a standpoint of, well, I just want to see things be fair. That's all I want. I just want fairness. And truth be told, there is a lot of unfairness in life. 
But when you get around to solving the problem of uh, unfairness with centrally planned, here's the air quotes again, fairness, it never works. Or at least it never works out for the people who ostensibly it's supposed to be helping. It works on the part of the, the elite, you know, the people who are calling the shots. Well, they never seem to miss a meal. They never seem to miss a vacation. They never miss a paycheck. It's you non-essential people that they're, uh, you know, dictating to. You're the ones who have to bear the price. So here's a great article from the Foundation for Economic Education. That wasn't real socialism. A better way to respond to the claim. Because when people protest and say, look, I don't think socialism's a good idea. In fact, if you talk to someone who has lived under socialism, and I've, I've met a number of people, you know, who lived in Eastern Europe or maybe even in the former Soviet Union, who have found their way to America, they know exactly what it's like to live under that collectivist, socialist mindset. And yet when they tell these young people who are now enamored of it and who wear the Che Guevara shirts and, you know, think they're, they're just being really cool and, and woke and, and trendy and, hey, we're just trying to be fair with everybody and this is inclusive and history is the, you know, the battle of the classes. I mean, it's, this is like straight out of Marx. When someone who's actually lived under socialism tells them, hey, you know what? It sucks. It's really bad. In fact, if, if you imagine the person who hates you the most, the person who cannot stand you and then has absolute control over your life, you give them control to determine where you live, what you will do for a living, how much you will be paid, what foods will be available to you, what kind of shoes you can buy, what kind of car you can drive, if you can drive a car, where you can travel. Yeah, give that to the person who cares the least about you. That's what it's like living under socialism. And one of the crazy things about it is the people who are really amoral, who can just treat other people like objects, the most sociopathic, they tend to rise to the top in in such systems because that's how you have to be in order to survive, much less to thrive. So here is the article from Hugo Newman. Again, this is for the Foundation for Economic Education. He says, it's a familiar scene. A socialist and a critic of socialism are engaged in a heated debate. The critic invariably raises what the socialist considers a hackneyed and lazy objection. Well, what about what happened in the Soviet Union or in Maoist China? Those were socialist states. Are you really endorsing such systems? Don't they prove that socialism doesn't work? The socialist scoffs, shakes his head dismissively, and rehearses his own correspondingly hackneyed reply, no, those weren't really socialist states. They were socialist in name only. In fact, they were just co-opted by corrupt forces from within or compromised by destabilizing environmental and or economic conditions or preempted by revolutionary forces from without with some combination or some combination of the three. Now, Hugo Newman says what happens next usually is that the debate descends into irreconcilable disagreements about what really happened in Russia in the 1920s. Empirical claims and counterclaims are virtually impossible to verify on the spot one way or the other, and eventually the debate ends at an impasse. Both parties return to their ideological priors and walk away convinced that their own position has not been refuted and the opponent's position remains thoroughly provisional and unconvincing. Now, Hugo Newman says, I've, I've observed this socialist rebuttal countless times. And he actually offers a few examples and links in the article. 
And he says, and I find it exasperating. I know the dynamic intimately because I myself used to be the socialist in the debate. When an opponent would raise several historical cases of nominally socialist states, I would cleave to the above line of resistance. Well, those were all botched attempts. Imperfect revolutions that went off the rails for whatever incidental reason. In the end, those regimes all ended up as totalitarian dictatorships in one form or another, presiding over, at best, a stagnating economy. But he says, socialism, my socialism, was deeply democratic, deeply anti-authoritarian, and deeply committed to economic advancement. And so no matter how much, no matter how many such historical cases were brought before me, I knew I could always ultimately deflect them by retreating to the safe haven of the ideal definition. Now he says, I find it exasperating. Because I can see now, having since become entirely convinced of socialism's untenability, how and why I could have blissfully persisted in the above mode of thinking and arguing. And more importantly, he says, I can see how and why the standard arguments against socialism were so thoroughly unconvincing to me. The problem is that more often than not, those thoroughly unconvincing arguments are the ones to are the ones that continue to be made against socialism. So he says, my intention in this article is to present a form of argument that's much more difficult for the socialist to evade in the above manner. It takes its cue from the work of political theorist Jason Brennan in his wonderful little book, Why Not Capitalism? And it involves a shift of focus from the content of the argument themselves to the argumentative standards that underpin them. I'm going to hit the pause button right here because we're coming up fast on our break. But I hope you find this interesting. And I don't know, you know, I mean, look, not everybody wants to sit around and debate socialism. Is it real socialism? Is it faux socialism? You know, that's that's not everybody's cup of tea. But if you're going to defend principles of prosperity, by which I mean free market economics, this is something you should probably take a look at. Yeah, you should probably have, you know, some ability to 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 form you know, a cogent argument one way or the other. So we'll take a very quick break. We'll come back. If you want to check out the article yourself, you will find it linked in today's show notes. That's June 2nd, 2021 at com. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you an article from Hugo Newman. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. And it's entitled, That Wasn't Real Socialism, A Better Way to Respond to the Claim. To me, this seems like a very credible article, if only for the fact that Hugo says, hey, I was once a socialist. I was the one making the argument for socialism. Since then, he has seen things in a different light, and I think he offers a pretty well-rounded perspective on this. He says, what I will try to demonstrate is that most socialists are characteristically inconsistent, even hypocritical, in the standards they implicitly deploy. If they're to be consistent, 
they will have to admit that socialism comes out in a relatively unfavorable light vis-a-vis other modes of economic and political organization. What's more, when they try to apply to socialism the basic epistemic, epistemic standards rather that they would characteristically accept and demand in another intellectual context, they should quickly find that socialism is a very shaky proposition indeed. So here's what doesn't work, why it doesn't work, and why that's important. He says, in the current milieu of public intellectuals, the most conspicuous opponent of revolutionary socialism is, without question, Professor Jordan B. Peterson, who has made no secret of his disdain for Marxism and its ideological progeny. Now, he says, I don't deny that Peterson is an impressive figure and that some of his criticisms of modern left-wing ideology, particularly its more radical identitarian incarnations, hit their mark. However, there are certain lines of argument that Peterson visits, revisits rather again and again in his public lectures that I'm afraid to say have little chance of swaying any socialists who might happen to be listening in. One such line of argument is the following. When a Marxist or socialist who is confronted with the humanitarian record of the, socialist, of the Soviet Union rather says, well, that wasn't real socialism. What they're really saying is, Well, if I had been in charge instead of Stalin, then I would have ushered in the socialist utopia because I truly know what socialism is and how it should be implemented. Hugo Newman says, when I hear this, I don't listen to someone who's already convinced of the errors of socialism. Instead, I try to imagine myself again as that earnest, young socialist. And what I hear isn't a knockdown argument, but rather a question-begging and bad-faith piece of rhetoric. And he says, I think to myself, well, that's a terrible argument, because the whole point is that socialism precludes there even being a Stalin in the first place. I wouldn't want to be in charge of the revolution instead of Stalin or Mao or whoever, and no socialist worthy of the attribution would. The whole point is that no one person should be in charge, as all political and economic decision-making is to be devolved to the majoritarian verdict of the proletariat to the workers who democratically control all industries. Any representatives who preside over centralized councils are to be held immediately accountable to their industrial constituents. So no, when I say that wasn't real socialism, I'm not saying that I would want to be a benign Stalin. I'm saying the very fact that there was a Stalin in the first place is sufficient proof that it wasn't real socialism. Now, his point here is this is this rebuttal is the one that will occur almost immediately to any earnest socialist. Peterson's strategy, entertaining as it is for those of us already convinced of socialism's failures, is unlikely to succeed in actually changing anyone's mind. And this is not trivial. He says Jordan B. Peterson is, with good reason, considered an otherwise formidable intellectual opponent. If revolutionary socialists then see that a man alleged to be one of their most capable public critics ultimately relies on such an unconvincing line of argument, they're even more liable to come away thinking that their ideology is on very firm ground. I mean, after all, in the spirit of John Stuart Mill, they will reason that if their ideology can withstand the critical onslaught of a man alleged to be one of their most forceful critics, then they can be all the more confident that their worldview remains in good intellectual standing. Socialism retains a righteous cash that makes it an enticing proposition for each new generation of political idealists. 
If we're to unfasten, unfashion socialists from their, or unfasten socialists from their faith in the inevitable historical march towards socialism, he says we need to do much better than accuse them of wanting to be benign Stalins. So, let's return to the socialist rebuttal that he sketched out in the opening paragraph. He says, The core of this rebuttal is the claim that none of the historical cases brought against the socialist as alleged counterexamples are, in fact, instantiations of socialism, but rather all are abortive attempts at its realization in the real world. The key to making a compelling case against the socialist is to step back from the empirical debate and turn attention instead to the argumentative standards implicit in the socialists' initial response, and then turn them against him. So a good way to do so is to mimic the socialist's own strategy and home in on a response. So here's the reply he says to consider. Okay, I'm willing to grant for the sake of argument that all historical cases of in-name-only socialist or communist states, among them Soviet Union, Maoist China, East Germany, North Korea, Cuba, Yugoslavia, Venezuela, Cambodia, and Ethiopia, to name just a few, were not, in substance, socialist states. At best, they were flawed and failed attempts to implement socialism. Fine. But he says, now consider the following list of countries. The United States, Great Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Switzerland, Hong Kong, Australia, Ireland, Chile, Iceland, Denmark, Sweden, the Netherlands, all of these countries taken from the top 20 most economically free countries, according to the Heritage Foundation's 2018 Index of Economic Freedom. By the way, the U.S. came in at 18, behind several of the much-vaunted Scandinavian socialistic states. All of these countries manifestly, or I'm sorry, certainly manifest their own internal flaws and failures, which socialists are only too happy to publicize and criticize and then lay at the feet of capitalism or the nebulous neoliberalism. But he says, I would maintain, not unreasonably, that none of these countries is really capitalist in the ideal sense. In fact, they're all some admixture of state intervention and imperfectly liberal markets. Now, if that's true, then... I, too, should be entitled to dismiss out of hand any and all criticisms coming my way based on the empirical track record of any of the aforementioned capitalist states. I'm just as entitled by the socialist's own argumentative standards to insist that these are not really capitalist countries. And so capitalism is no more debunked by these in-name cases than socialism is by its own list of in-name-only cases. That's a pretty clever way to approach this. He says most socialists would, of course, be unimpressed by this response at first pass. And the problem is that it's not clear how they can consistently reject this line of argument without simultaneously undermining their own original rebuttal. So they might say, for example, well, yes, none of those countries is completely capitalist, but they do manifest some elements of capitalism. And whatever suboptimal outcomes there are can be attributed to these capitalist elements. But he says the problem with that response is that It's not clear why I can't make the corresponding case against the list of in-name-only socialist states. He says the socialist might insist that those countries manifested absolutely no elements of socialism. But it's a highly implausible line to take, if only in light of the fact that in several or maybe even most of those historical cases, many principled socialists readily sang the praises of elements of those socialist states, especially in their early stages. Venezuela is the most recent case in point. To double down and insist that they never manifested any socialist characteristics whatsoever would require an extreme form of retrospective double-think or, for that matter, willful historical blindness. 
He says they might even try to evade this charge by trying another tack, insisting that even if there were socialistic elements, the bad results can reasonably be attributed to the non-socialist elements. But then that opens the door to my saying, conversely, the bad results of in-name-only capitalist societies can be attributed to the non-capitalistic elements. We can both go down that road, but the price the socialist must pay for doing so is their own case will appear to be just as unconvincing as they see the corresponding capitalist case to be. In other words, both will smack of special pleading to any impartial observer, and rightly so. I have to admit, from an argumentative standpoint, that's a pretty sound way to do it. And it's not, you know, heavy, it's not browbeating people. This is just using some good, simple logic. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Hugo, I almost said Hugo Weaver. No, not the, or Hugo Weaving, not the actor. No, Hugo Newman. Uh, this is from the Foundation for Economic Education, and it's, uh, that wasn't real socialism, a better way to respond to the claim. Before we dive back into the article, let me take a moment here to thank the sponsors of our show, including HSLAmmo.com. I also want to thank Pure-Light.com and our friends at MonticelloCollege.org. Awesome businesses, awesome organizations, and something that you can link to directly from the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll also find links to articles like this one from Hugo Newman. Now, we, we've talked about ways to respond to someone when they're saying, well, that wasn't real socialism. And he says, well, look, if you want to do that, then we can also look at capitalism and say, look at all the countries that ostensibly are capitalist, and you can say, that's not really capitalism either. And I think this is a really brilliant way to to break down that special pleading. Yeah, but in this case, you know, it's it's different. He says, is there, he asks rather, is there another line that the socialist can take, though, to try to prop up their support of socialism? And he says, as far as I can tell, the only alternative is to retreat to the high ground of so-called ideal socialism. The socialist might grant that, yes, <clears throat> the historical cases manifested some elements of socialism. However, they were not fully socialist. Full, social, full socialism, he says, would be purely democratic manifest no elements of dictatorship or centralized force. They would be economically dynamic. This kind of society in which each person participates in the democratic control of the economy would be highly desirable. It is, to the socialist's mind, clearly superior to capitalism. But superior to which capitalism? Uh Uh-oh. See, this is where things become uncomfortable again for the socialist. He'd say, well, look around you. Look at the inequality and the suffering that prevails in all these capitalist societies. Is it not self-evident they're morally and economically inferior to socialism? Well, yeah, they're certainly inferior to socialists' uh, ideal description of happy workers effectively controlling the entire economy and ensuring that everyone gets an equitable share of resources and necessities. But why is this the appropriate comparison? As Jason Brennan rightly points out in Why Not Capitalism, 
It's not a particularly useful or informative comparison, nor is it an intellectually honest one. The relevant comparison is either ideal socialism with ideal capitalism or real socialism with real capitalism. Apples to apples, oranges to oranges. To compare ideal socialism with real capitalism is to unjustifiably tip the scales in favor of socialism. Moreover, he says, it invites the question as to why I cannot, by the same token, compare ideal capitalism with real socialism and conclude on that basis that capitalism is clearly the superior economic system to court. Now, he says, I won't take up the task of elaborating on the ideal versus ideal comparison here. Jason Brennan's already done an excellent job of making the moral case against ideal socialism vis-a-vis ideal capitalism in the aforementioned book. But he says, I want to finish by considering the real versus real comparison again. And it's important to emphasize, if the socialist is going to be reasonable and not resort to indefensible double standards, then they will have to opt for one comparison or the other and not vacillate between the two. And it's here that the socialist case begins to crumble under the weight of evidence. So for the purposes of illustration, he says, let's return to the capitalist analog of the original socialist rebuttal. A socialist comes to me, presents me with a list of capitalist societies in the real world, pointing to various morally or economically suboptimal outcomes in these countries. I scoff and roll my eyes and insist none of these are really capitalist countries, so these problems can't be fairly attributed to capitalism per se. The socialist pauses a moment, ponders, and finally asks, well, what would it take for you to actually change your mind? What would, in principle, count as evidence against capitalism? If I presented you with a hundred more cases of real-world attempts at capitalism in which the same kinds of problems and bad outcomes occurred, would you finally admit that capitalism just doesn't work? Or would you simply repeat the same old refrain that none of these societies was really capitalist? And here Hugo Newman says, I take a moment and finally conclude that unless those real-world cases conformed with my conception of ideal capitalism and then manifested the bad outcomes, then capitalism would remain unchanged in my eyes. But he says, I venture that the socialist would find this kind of attitude highly anti-intellectual, dogmatic, and unscientific, and with good reason. Under those circumstances, capitalism would essentially become an unfalsifiable theory, an article of ideological faith impervious to evidence. But he says, unfortunately, this is precisely the kind of attitude typically manifested by the socialist. But it's even worse for the socialist. And the reason for this is that if we stick to the real versus real comparison and adhere to the same empirical standards across the board, the real world cases of socialism invariably come out much worse. With respect to health outcomes, nutritional outcomes, uh, human rights violations, child mortality rates, corruption, life expectancy, and GDP per capita in real terms... The track records of the imperfect real-world versions of socialism pale in comparison to their real-world capitalist counterparts. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. Look at all the people who say, you know, if we could just get rid of all these uh, red state Trump voters, you know, why within 10 years the U.S. would have the most perfect system ever. Then you point out, well, you know, in uh, California, in the Bay Area, that was probably the lowest place of, you know, support for Trump in the last election, that you were going to find. Less people voted for Trump in that area than anywhere else in the country. So how do you explain feces all over their streets, tent cities everywhere? 
I mean, come on. That's the real world right there, man. Seen it myself with my own eyes. How do you explain it? Just one final thought here again from Hugo Newman. He says, let me conclude by posing the challenge in a little bit different way. He says, is it really more plausible to maintain that the similar failures in every single real-world attempt at socialism were the results of different incidental factors that derailed the socialist experiments time and time again? That each of these socialist movements and leaders, all of whom seemed so earnestly and genuinely committed to socialism from the outset, were derailed because those movements and leaders couldn't just get it quite right each time for different reasons? Or, he says, is it not a far more parsimonious and plausible explanation that the repeated pattern of relative economic failure, that same pattern of failure that manifested in widely widely varying sociocultural backdrops, was due to the inherent defects of socialism in the real world? He says, my guess is if the roles were reversed, the socialist would conclude that the capitalist apologist was flouting basic intellectual standards in cleaving to their ideology despite the evidence. And unfortunately for the socialist in the world of real-life warts and all economic systems, it's socialism that collapsed under that evidentiary and intellectual burden. That's a pretty powerful article. Again, it's linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Please consider taking a look at it. All right, got a couple other topics. We've only got a couple other segments here to uh, to cover this in, but I I want to uh, I want to touch for just a moment on calls to defund the police. I mean, come on, it's been just a little over a year. I think it was it was about a year ago that the riots really were starting in earnest in many of the nation's big cities, and of course, calls to defund the police. Well, the people who want the police defunded. You know, I'm talking Black Lives Matters and other matter and others. Um, they're not really calling to end state coercion through organized violence. They just want their own monopoly on force. Which leads me to ask: Is there a private sector alternative? Tate Fegley, writing for Mises.org, says private security apps may be the future of neighborhood policing. He says, as cities defund their police departments and the quantity of public safety services demanded further outstrips the quantity supplied, market entrants are looking for ways to provide new services. About two weeks ago, an SUV bearing the logo of the Citizen app and the text Making Your World a Safe Place was spotted in Los Angeles. Leaked emails obtained by Vice as well as interviews with former Citizen employees revealed that Citizen was testing a pilot program to provide private security services via their app. However, they since have stated that they have no plans to launch this service. Interesting. Currently, the Citizen app provides users safety alerts based on 911 calls and user-reported incidents in their area, and it's available in 20 cities. And it also offers a $20 a month service called Protect that provides the user's real-time location to a citizen employee, allows the user to activate a video stream sent to that employee by using a code word, and enables citizen to alert emergency services to the user's precise location. I mean, I'm seeing some good things there. I also see a few things that sound a little bit questionable. Private security in place of policing? Oh, man, that gets people angry when you suggest that such a thing could be a possibility. You know, it is a reality, though. We'll talk about it more just the other side of the break. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So, private security apps might be the future of neighborhood policing. I had not even heard of this app, Citizen, before I read this article. But uh, I, I have to say I'm a little bit intrigued. And this is again from the uh, Mises Institute. The author of the article is uh, Tate Fegley. And uh, the, one of the things they point out here, Citizen created this app. They were looking at the possibility of, of providing a private security feature for the app. And he says, looking to expand their offering, Citizen explored partnering with private security companies to provide additional services to users. One of those companies is Securitas. Another is Los Angeles Professional Security, or LAPS, which describes itself as a subscription law enforcement service. According to their website, LAPS provides personal or rapid personal response, patrol, alarm response, video monitoring, vacation watch, and Apple Watch fall detection for elderly or differently abled loved ones living alone. Now, they also offer mask enforcement for private businesses that L.A. County is required to be unpaid enforcers of mask mandates. LAPS has two subscription tiers. For $200 a month, one receives patrol as well as alarm and smart signal monitoring. It's $999 per month for evacuation and on-site personal security. Now, Citizen's planned app was described as Uber for private security. The ability to obtain security services on demand can put such services within the reach of those who would otherwise be left unprotected. According to the leaked emails from Citizen, the Los Angeles Police Department called their planned service a real game-changer. Similar to how ride-sharing and car-sharing services have enabled some to avoid the costs of car ownership, as well as allow others to just get a ride when needed. An on-demand security app may enable individuals to obtain supplemental protection when a full subscription service may be beyond their needs or budget. A good example of this, and the one that Citizen tested in their private in their pilot program, rather, is having a security escort provided quickly upon re- upon request. And while this is a service that many security providers, such as those on college campuses, routinely perform, it's likely to be a low priority for big city police departments if they provide it at all. Now, although Citizen does not currently plan to pursue offering security services through its app, this kind of service is not novel. The London-based company My Local Bobby has for several years provided a service that allows subscribers to have a direct line to a Bobby assigned to them and access his real-time location through their app, with patrol and escort services bundled in. Whether future services will also be subscription-based or a la carte, as most ride-sharing services are, eh, that remains to be seen. What this technology enables is the reduction of the transaction costs associated with the provision of security. I believe economists err when they categorize policing as a public good, since it's clearly rivalrous beyond a certain congestion point and is in many ways excludable. For example, I can hire Barney Fife to protect my house and instruct him to ignore any burglars breaking in next door and advertise to potential criminals that Barney will leave them alone, thereby preventing free riding by neighbors. But the real issue is economizing on the use of Barney's labor. Everyone in the neighborhood could hire their own Barney, but it would probably be more economical to enter some kind of sharing agreement. 
Barney could patrol around my block or a larger area without sacrificing much in terms of the effectiveness of his patrol for me individually. Figuring out innovative ways to share Barney's services enables more effective economizing, just as the sharing economy facilitates more use of goods that would otherwise sit idle. So an app that allows people to hire security in a spot market when they need it has the potential to reduce the cost of security on certain margins in the same way ride-sharing has decreased the cost of transportation on certain margins. Now, for undisclosed reasons, Citizen abandoned their plans. So their service may have turned out to be unprofitable had they pursued it. That's perhaps one of the best arguments in favor of markets in security. Service uh, providers may, must actually provide what consumers are willing to pay for, and if they, and they are allowed to fail if they don't. Market discipline is far more effective in holding police accountable than any proposed accountability measures for government monopoly police. Bottom line is the less people rely on government police for their safety, the better off they all will be. I'll have to see if I can find it. I wrote an article a few years ago about Dale Brown and his private protection service. And it's a, it's a private law enforcement service that businesses and certain communities in Detroit hired. And the interesting thing about this is, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to paint with too broad of a brush here. But when the state is involved, force is always an option. And sometimes it feels as though force becomes the, uh, you know, the go-to. That's the default setting. What? You're not doing what I said? Well, then I'm going to have to go to force. We'll start with the taser and work our way up. But eventually the state will kill you to make you do what it says you have to do. That's just the nature of the state. I'm sorry if that offends people, but... That's why you have to be careful when you say, well, you know, there ought to be a law about this. Anytime you utter those words, you invite a man with a gun to come sit down at the table with you. And the fact of the matter is people buy, people do, uh, they hire and and they, they patronize private security firms that do the job in a much more responsive, much more respectful way. And I'm not bagging on police in general. I personally know some police officers who are among the finest human beings on the face of the planet. But part of what makes them the finest human beings on the face of the planet is they regularly find themselves asking the question, am I part of the problem or am I part of the solution? Because the way the state uses them is sometimes brutal and sometimes justice, at least in that definition, serves the interests of the state, not the people. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. Okay, one final note here. And I have hesitated to go here just because I don't know what to make of it. But you're catching all the talk about the new UFO narrative. Oh, yeah, UFOs are real. We've seen the footage, you know, and this is what our Navy jets were able to film. And I'll admit there's some pretty crazy, unexplained stuff. And no, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Are are those legit extraterrestrials? Or is this just, you know, some super secret military technology that... You know, we're being told, oh, yeah, it could be E.T. because, you know, we, we don't have that technology. I don't know. Caitlin Johnstone is very good at uh, just calling things as she sees them. And she says, I've been learning as much as I can about the new UFO narrative the political and media class have been pushing in conjunction with the U.S. military to prepare for the Senate report that's due to be released this month. So apparently there's going to be some transparency. 
transparency rather. But she says, one of the disconcerting things that I keep seeing again and again from the major players in this new narrative like Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon is the absurd assertion that not only is it entirely possible that the unknown phenomena allegedly being regularly witnessed by military personnel are extraterrestrial in origin, but that if they are extraterrestrial, they may want to harm us. And she goes through in this article and explains, you know, this is a great crisis opportunity for those who are charged with, you know, defending the nations of the earth to weaponize space. She says the notion that UFOs could pose a threat to humans, whether they're alleged operators from our own world or from another, is being promoted by the main drivers of this strange new plot line. And sadly, it's being enthusiastically lapped up by many UFO enthusiasts who see framing these phenomena as a national security threat as the best way to get mainstream power structures to take them seriously and disclose information to the public. She says that's bothersome for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's bothersome because one ought to be bothered anytime military and intelligence insiders make unsubstantiated claims that there's a foreign threat to U.S. security. Yeah, their track record hasn't been great here. The added notion that this foreign threat could be from another world carries all kinds of implications for what uh, kinds of unprecedented, uh, unprecedentedly radical policy and funding adjustments would have to be made in order to counter the supposed threat. And it would take an appalling amount of gullibility to believe that those adjustments would be made for that reason at this point in time, instead of the very obvious reason that the U.S. is in a new and escalating Cold War with both Russia and China. There's a lot more to her article. You may or may not agree with it. I, I don't know. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to leave that up to you. But you'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I don't know what to make of the UFO phenomena. So I'm, I'm not even going to speculate to what it could be. The last time I saw an effort, or at least what I perceived as an effort to really convince us the aliens are coming, aliens are coming, was 25 years ago. When Independence Day, yeah, the Will Smith movie came out. And I thought, man, there's a lot of movies about, you know, alien invasions and stuff happening right now. It's almost like someone is trying to nudge us in that direction of thinking, get ready, here it comes. I don't know if that's the case here, but I'm always trying to nurture that healthy sense of skepticism. This much I do know. Your worldview is yours. You need to be willing to step up and own it. That means you've got to be able to sort out... Fact from narrative. Narrative is simply storytelling. And there's a lot of it going on. We're trying to be shepherded in a predictable direction. Own your worldview and choose for yourself what is real and what isn't. Learn how to to spot the difference. This is The Brian Hyde Show.